This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. Uh, This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to the work of philanthropy and civil society. Uh, As ever, I'm your host, Rod Davis, and this is episode 28. Um, And this episode is a chat with Ben Soskis. Now, Ben uh, is a research associate at the Centre on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the Urban Institute, which is a think tank in the US. But I knew him before that more as the editor of a website called Histville, which is uh, a place where they bring together articles and views on the history of philanthropy from a kind of growing community of academics interested in that. And as regular listeners to the podcast will know, the history of philanthropy is an area of of particular interest for me. Um, but also Ben is a has written much more widely on philanthropy um, and is kind of expert on issues relating to kind of philanthropy through the ages and today. So he's contributed to all kinds of publications like the Chronicle of Philanthropy, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Stanford Social Innovation Review. Um, and we've it was great for me to to talk to Ben finally because he's one of those people that I've kind of known for a few years via email and interactions on Twitter, but we've never actually managed to meet or speak. So it was great to finally have a conversation and uh, find out we had a lot in common when it comes to our thinking on philanthropy, as I'm sure you'll hear. Um, so we had a great wide-ranging conversation, which as a result is is on the long side, I'll have to say, but I've left it all there intact because I couldn't really find any way of dividing it up and I thought you know, all of it was genuinely interesting. Um, so we talked about inequality in philanthropy, um, the question of whether philanthropy um, is anti-democratic or not, um, why studying the history of philanthropy is interesting, what some of the limitations of, of doing that are, and sort of Ben's take on uh, where things are at the moment in the US and what some of the biggest challenges facing the, the sector over there are at the moment. Um I should say there's one point just to flag up where um, something went slightly skew-if with the recording, which gave me minor heart palpitations. Um, it's worked out fine, but there's just a small glitch that you may notice um, reasonably early on in the recording, but hopefully it doesn't uh, affect things too much. Also, I think a couple of times there was possibly some sort of uh, alert going on on Ben's end, so there's a couple of pings that sound a little bit like... Um, something just coming out of the oven but i can assure you i wasn't cooking a pie at the same time as recording um but then that stopped so hopefully other than that the sound quality should be absolutely fine um so with all that said um let's get right into um the interview and then i will come back briefly at the end just to do a, a little bit of housekeeping and flag up some places where you can find out more information so let's go with the interview Hi, Ben. Uh, thanks very much for agreeing to, to come on uh, the podcast. Um, great to have you on here. It's it's great for me because um, obviously I kind of became aware of your work uh, a few years back and certainly latterly um, through your involvement with Histville and various of the kind of 
uh, articles that you've written um, and obviously our kind of shared interest in history of philanthropy in particular um, but also more broadly kind of exploring all the sort of issues around philanthropy so it's great to have you on Um, I guess as a a bit of a starting point maybe you could just explain in your own words kind of who you are what your background is and how you got into studying philanthropy. Sure and um, it's a a real pleasure for me to be uh, talking to you today I think um, I'm uh, a big admirer of your work and consumer of, of your uh, research. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I think we will have plenty to talk about. Um, I can give you a little bit of a sense of my scholarly origin story. It's, um, and, uh, and I think it, it does, um, speak to, uh, you know, some of the challenges of, of the research topics I've looked at. Um, so I I was a journalist and uh, then decided to study American history um, in grad school and I was pretty sure I wanted to study reform very vaguely construed and when I wanted to study reform I was interested in sort of complicating it my instinct was to study abolitionism and the tensions and kind of contradictions within the abolitionist movement um, but one day I was um, at a, a seminar and a, a historian from the University of California named Alice O'Connor, a really tremendous scholar, um, was presenting a paper about um, something about American philanthropy. I don't even remember the, the exact uh, topic, but in one of the footnotes, it said it referred kind of obliquely to a congressional investigation of philanthropy in the progressive era. And I remember thinking to myself, huh, that's weird. Why would anybody investigate philanthropy? Um, which just shows how young and <laughs> naive I was. Um, but I, you know, I, I just found that a kind of strangely enticing idea. Um, and, uh, the more I sort of pulled on that string, um, the more convinced I became that, um, that in fact, uh, there was a deep sort of ambivalence and suspicion, um, towards the kind of voluntarist tradition in the United States that um, sort of paralleled uh, the what I call American benevolent exceptionalism, this idea of, you know, we're all cheerful givers, we solve our problems through charity, et cetera. But it, it was it was sort of a, a subterranean current uh, or, uh, that that um, kind of flowed uh, past that major tradition. Um, and I was I, I was really interested in sort of uncovering it and giving it its it, the full attention I thought I deserved. And and incorporating it into the study of philanthropy itself. Um, so what I ended up, my uh, dissertation what ended up being uh, a kind of broad intellectual and cultural history of the suspicion of private giving um, in the U.S. as both a uh, challenge to democratic ethics and institutions, um, a challenge to the market, um, a challenge to um, the development of a kind of welfare state, um, but I think the main, my main um, sort of idea was that um, this was not a kind of exogenous tradition, that the philanthropists themselves were keenly aware of these challenges and critiques and incorporated them into their, into their thinking about how to, how to give. Um, and, I, and that, I think, was a, a really kind of powerful um, uh, sort of idea for me. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, at that point I knew very, very little about contemporary philanthropy. Um, but, uh, for a host of reasons, I decided to sort of straddle academia and journalism, um, and, uh, a little bit of consulting 
And it turned out that just by luck, basically, um, that uh, the the moment that I became kind of prepared to take my uh, to, to enter into the professional realm was a, a moment in which the kind of ambivalence towards philanthropy and the you know sort of the various uh, suspicions of, of, of mega giving um, was really coming into its own and I think needed some historical meat on its bones. Um, and so I started doing some uh, journalism, some, some research. Um, and my, my main perspective was um, trying to sort of flesh out this critical uh, tradition on philanthropy, on philanthropy, but doing it from sort of within the tradition itself. Um, I thought a lot of academic writing towards philanthropy was, uh, you know, was so sort of hostile and critical that it, it, it became detached from an understanding of, of the tradition. Um, and so that, that was, that was my, uh, perspective. Um, you know, and, and I think it, it allowed me to, um, you know, to both be a critic and, but also, uh, be sympathetic to, to the, the sort of ambitions and goals and, and uh, I think, you know, good intentions of a lot of the people in the sector. It's really, yeah, it's really interesting because it kind of, I'm in danger of violently agreeing with you because I certainly agree. I think one of the first things of yours I came across was an article you did for The Atlantic, I think, about, you know, why it's important to, to criticise philanthropy. Um, and certainly, you know, it's, it's a, a theme that in, in my own book, I kind of covered um, the fact that there is kind of a, a strong historical trend of both external and internal criticism within, within the world of philanthropy and kind of recurrent themes that I think remain very relevant today. And I guess I agree that the problem I often have with writing about um, philanthropy or a lot of the the kind of supposed thought that is put forward is it just seems to collapse into a binary distinction between either people coming out and saying philanthropy is just inherently terrible and criticizing it you know on Marxist grounds or, or that kind of thing or people within the philanthropy world um, just presenting themselves as kind of mindless cheerleaders and being unwilling to sustain any criticism and as with most things in life, both of those I think are totally unhelpful and actually finding a middle ground where you can kind of engage with the merits of philanthropy whilst also acknowledging the reality of the kind of the challenges that it poses in terms of democratic deficits and, and you know, kind of creating an, an unhealthy um, uh, kind of imbalance in terms of the, the sway that wealthy people have over public policy and those kinds of things is the right path to, to choose. But I mean, do you find in within the world of philanthropy, it's quite hard to retain that nuance and be that sort of reasoned voice in the middle that is both kind of sceptical, but not, you know, um, uh, but also still kind of enthusiastic about the fundamental idea of philanthropy? I think that many people in the sector, including many of the powerful people in the sector, uh, though not all of them, I should say, but many of them do kind of harbor that. I, I, I think native ambivalence towards the enterprise, um, and and if they feel like you are being fair-minded uh, and honoring both the kind of you know, the the what I call the problem of, of charity, but also the potential of, of charity, and I, I mean charity kind of to encompass both philanthropy and, and small-scale giving, then I, I I found actually that they're um, willing to take critiques. Uh, you know, it's it's not always um, it can get uncomfortable. Um, and I think p- 
part of the, I mean, it is, it is a challenge to try to figure out the difference between a kind of systemic critique of philanthropy and a, and a kind of, uh, a local, um, kind of constructive critique of a particular po uh, policy intervention. Um, there, there are certain kind of inherent flaws and, and, um, you know, debilities in, in philanthropy, um, that, uh, you're not going to be able to solve <laughs> easily, right? Like the, the, the idea of, of private citizens having inordinate power um, is a kind of, you know, that's, a, that's an original sin to some extent. Um, but there's a lot you can do there. And I, I, I my sense, and, and in the response to uh, some of my writing, that th there is a significant contingent of people in the sector that, appreciate that critique. I mean, that doesn't mean they're always acting on it. That doesn't mean that, you know, that I think there is a this sort of countercurrents of, of uh, hubris and, and all the stuff that we, that we are familiar of, with, but um, they, they are, they get the, some of the, the deep challenges, deep democratic challenges. Um, and um, what, what I've found is that recognizing that those, um, that those critiques are baked into the history of philanthropy itself. They're not kind of, you know, they're not necessarily populist eruptions that happen every 20 years, though those do, those do occur. I mean, they're literally part of the, the sort of DNA of, of philanthropy, a concern with what, what does private giving do to citizens? Um, that sort of understanding that and appreciating that, I think helps to some extent, um, you know, like mitigate the, the um the the difficulty of, of taking a you know taking a shot which which is what i think we all need to do sometimes we have to, you have to be uh you have to be critical and you have to you have to sometimes um point out uh, major problems but but i think knowing that that those that those critiques are an essential part of the story of philanthropy itself uh, is is one way to kind of get folks to take them more seriously yeah, that's that's interesting. I guess um, I feel with with a lot of the the sort of talk about the history of philanthropy, one of the benefits is giving people in the here and now a sense that they are, you know, they're part of a kind of long tradition and a kind of rich tapestry. And and perhaps you know, I, I think on on that side, the many of the criticisms that they might encounter are, you know, they're not per, they're not sort of ad hominem attacks that that have come out of nowhere. They are, as you say, they're kind of part of the the very sort of fabric of philanthropy and, and always have been and then I, I always think on the flip side it also helps um to to some extent um dealing with the the fact that um uh quite often i think uh tr trends within the philanthropy world are presented as if they are entirely new um and obviously with most things actually they've been seen at least once before in the in the history of philanthropy and i think it's quite useful sometimes to to remind people uh, in that world of that um just on on the question of criticism i mean what to your mind do you think is is perhaps the the most um telling criticism or the most difficult to answer criticism of philanthropy i mean i think it comes down to power um i, I you know that i, I I can speak to American history. I think you can. You can um, let me know if this. I, I think it's also true of of, uh, of British history. But there is a um, a deep suspicion of concentrated power, um, however it is manifested or arrayed. Um, and 
I, I you know, it, it's only relatively recently in the, in the grand scope of things, and at least in the American context, that there's been a kind of legal and political infrastructure set up that, um, that the default isn't a major, major suspicion of that kind of philanthropic power. Um, so I, again, I, I don't, I think that's something that, um, it's, it's something that every philanthropist has to come to terms with. It's not, it's, it, I, I don't have a, I think there's just all sorts of interesting ways that, that uh, philanthropy has tried to again, mitigate the, the sort of original sin of, of, of private power. Um, but you know, it's, you can't, you can't remove it entirely. Uh, I, I think that's part of, um, that's, that's part of the, the, the challenge. Uh, having that kind of power allows philanthropy also to do, you know, a lot of good and to innovate and to take risks and to uh, perform, um, you know, important civic tasks. So, uh, yeah, I, I, that's, I think, I think that's my, the, the issue that I, I'm constantly grappling with. And I mean, I think that I'd be curious to hear your take. My sense is that's something that the sector itself is increasingly grappling with. It's a, it's a, you know, prominent theme or a, a kind of sub theme in, in a large amount of the conversations people are having. Um, you know, there's like kind of discourse of, of effectiveness, which uh, I think to some has an interesting relationship with the, this concern about power. Um, but I think a lot of people are struggling with it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I guess the, the question of power dynamics and power imbalances within philanthropy in, in various ways, as you say, does seem to be, uh, you know, a large part of the the conversation, um, and and I guess there's a kind of growing realization that of the necessity, you know, not only to to give away money through philanthropy, but to find means of giving away power as well. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, in something like the international development world, it seems like there's a a, a great deal of soul searching going on at the moment about you know the 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 downsides of the model of kind of Western aid agencies delivering aid to um people and communities in in the developing world or the global south and obviously they are trying to structurally find ways of of overcoming that i guess um you know i guess you see the same sort of thing in in a kind of local context and i know here in the uk there's a one big trend at the moment is a kind of growing focus on place-based philanthropy and place-based funding and that that immediately raises quite acute questions i think about power power dynamics because i think they're felt that much more keenly in a, in a local setting where the the donors and the recipients are kind of parts of the of the same community um so so yeah i mean i think i think that question there um is is a hugely important one um and i think you know there are interesting ways in which uh, philanthropy can can try and, and overcome that and i guess it's probably about democratizing the models of philanthropy that, that you use um uh which is why i think something like you know the shift towards direct cash transfers um in international development is interesting even if i don't necessarily believe it's the answer to all the problems it, it does raise a, a, an intriguing challenge about you know if you think power is the problem and you want to do something about it are you willing to go to the extreme of giving away all of the power over how money is spent to the people in receipt of it and how comfortable are you accepting the downsides of that as well as the potential 
benefits um you know at the very least i think it provides a, an important challenge to to traditional ways of doing things um one thing i one thing i really wanted to ask you about actually just following on from that um it's related to to power but kind of in a different um slightly uh, different um sense is is the kind of the role of philanthropy as part of the wider structure of society that sits alongside elected democracy because i I guess there's kind of there's a criticism of philanthropy that it is undemocratic or anti-democratic because it allows people who haven't uh had to you know seek the votes of people through a kind of uh, democratic system of elections to exert power over um public policy or just the general public mood and public conversation and some people think that you know that's perhaps one of the most telling criticisms i'm i'm intrigued particularly in your take about whether you think there's actually a kind of counter argument to be made that that's one of the good things about philanthropy um because I know certainly that um, you wrote an article that, that I saw, um, I think shortly after Trump was elected over there in, in the US, sort of saying that actually one of the key roles of philanthropy in the foundation world at that point was to to sort of act as a, as a counterweight, almost a kind of uh, government in exile. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, so there's a couple of, of answers to that. One is, look, there's a, there's a, a long tradition in American um, Political uh, history of um, the the voluntary sector serving as a kind of uh, counter public or a you know a, a realm a domain in which people who feel excluded from the electoral realm or the polit- the official political realm can exercise their their will and express their views um, and and so um, the, if you if you think about demo- if you understand democracy um, expansively um, in in a way. Uh, the opportunity for people to uh, express themselves through giving, through service, um, you know, is is an important component of of a kind of full uh, civic and democratic engagement. So, uh, you know, that doesn't that doesn't address the, the issue of, of of inequality and sort of um, concentrated power within that realm. But uh, you know, I, I think I think it's it's um, it's a mistake to see uh, the kind of philanthropic sector as entirely divorced from the, the sort of political realm uh, in terms of the the role of citizenship. Um, it's, you know, I, I think we're citizens when we give and we're citizens when we vote. Um, uh, so th- there's that. I, I, you know, I struggle with this idea of, um, in, the, in the kind of wake of Trump, I, uh, I remember thinking a lot about, about philanthropy as a form of resistance. And I, I I don't remember like where this term came from, but I, I'm pretty sure I used it in that essay. Clearly, like it, it, this was before there was such a thing as an official resistance. That was a key term that people were just thinking about. And um, and, and on one hand, I, I I really do think it it you know it makes sense within the, the context of philanthropy's role to um, you know to take risks to um, to uh, push society in directions, um, that, you know, it, it perhaps, um, is uncomfortable going. Um, and, you know, and, and in the past we've certainly seen philanthropy play an important advocacy role, um, in, in challenging the, the sort of political system. Um, but you know, whenever I, I think about these kind of issues, I, I really do try to take a kind of Rawlsian, you know, sort of, um, what what would I if I didn't know my own political 
valence, like my own identity as how, how would I think about that? And I, I you know, there, there is something uncomfortable about the idea of really uh, of of um, of a space in which um, the an elected will of the people is, um, you know, is is challenged and supported by um, by wealthy donors. Um, and so, it, like, if you if you remove the sort of political labels and think of it um, just as a kind of um, you know, in, in an abstract sense, um, I, I do think that we should have the kind of same type of general discomfort um, that, you know, that we think about in terms of any type of private um, wealth or private power exercised um, to change the, the, the political structures. Um, and, you know, and, and, and incorporate that into the way we think about um, progressive philanthropy and, uh, you know, as well as conservative philanthropy. Um, you know, it's, it's, a I, I, that's something, you know, I, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with this idea of how do you have a kind of political identity, you know, which I, I do and we all do. Um, and also, you know, try to think about the actual kind of structures of philanthropy and the ethics of philanthropy in a way that isn't just basically, um, you know, affirming whatever your particular ideological predisposition is. Uh, and I've tried to write in the past, for instance, about, you know, how do you look at George Soros in relationship to, say, the Koch brothers? Uh, you know, I think there are differences that I, I do. I'm not I don't want to conflate them. But but, um, you know, what what are the I think what are the responsibilities, say, of progressives to think through the challenges of progressive progressive social change philanthropy uh, and some of the dangers, um, even even if if it's supporting policies and programs that that you're sympathetic you're generally sympathetic to, um, and you know I, I, that's something I, I don't I'm constantly trying to kind of fiddle and tinker with my the balance to get that right, um, and I, I don't think I'm there yet, but uh, it's a uh, it's a constant. Yeah, well, I'm glad it's not just me that struggles with that particular one because I I know I agree. I mean, I think it's it's one of the biggest challenges for anybody who wants to sort of, I think, think seriously and objectively about the the interaction of philanthropy and democracy. And I think, you know, your example there of the of Soros and the Koch brothers is exactly right. Because I was, I know you, I've read you make this point before, and I know um, David Callahan makes it quite well in, in um, his book, um, that, you know, if, if what you're trying to do is to pick away at the underlying question of the legitimacy of philanthropy, you have to make sure that that regardless of your own sort of political disposition, what you say and what you're defending about philanthropy applies just as equally to somebody on the opposite end of the polit- political spectrum whose views you disagree with. So, you know, if I'm going to argue for the legitimacy of high net worth philanthropy within a democracy as a kind of counterweight to um, to, to the electoral system, I have to make sure that anything that I say applies to the Koch brothers funding climate change scepticism as much as it does to anything that, you know, fits more with my own personal views. And and that is extremely challenging, I find. Yeah, no, I, I don't have I don't have a good answer to that other than I mean, I, I do think it, it um, it's helpful. I find it clarifying because, um, you know, th- there are some issues that are particular to, say, libertarian philanthropy. Um, and and uh, and they ha- that has its own history and its own uh, kind of practices. Um, 
But but when you but forcing yourself to think about somebody who you are actually sympathetic towards uh, politically, uh, but thinking about the sort of as you say the underlying questions of legitimacy, I find it's actually more helpful than uh, doing so with a kind of political antagonist. Uh, and so you know that that that's that exercise has actually really helped me. Um, if not completely clarify some of my views towards the place of, of philanthropy in a, in a democracy, then, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I think it's clarified the major points at which I'm still trying to figure out an answer. Uh, so it's, it's clarifying my, my um, lack of, of clarity. To some yeah. extent. I guess one of the, the interesting questions like uh, that sort of shifts partway away from the, from theory towards practice or pragmatics, I always think is, is you can kind of have this, this, debate about the legitimacy of philanthropy kind of um, in these terms but but I think in order to feel comfortable about it one of the hidden assumptions has to be that there is a true plurality across the political spectrum whereas I always worry that in reality you know the the truth is that people certainly of high levels of wealth tend to err towards one side of the political spectrum and i think you know the evidence suggests that that's the sort of conservative side of the political spectrum so actually in policy making terms you can't be as sanguine about it uh, as all that because the reality is if you allow philanthropists to have that amount of power that will skew quite heavily towards one side of the political spectrum in in reality do you think do you think that's kind of an added element of concern and i think it's a very um i think it's a valid point i mean you know the, the what I would say is um, that uh, so there is not a tradition of of strongly progressive philanthropy that matches the the current um, you know power of of conservative philanthropy. There is a tradition of sort of moderate liberal philanthropy, which was dominant for much of the nation's history. Um, so part of the so th- there's not an actual equilibrium, you could say. Um, but part, part of uh, the challenge um, is sort of addressing the broader history. Uh, and so, you know, what, one, one thing that um, I think David Callahan gets this, this right, um, you, you have to balance your discomfort with, 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 uh, with powerful philanthropists shaping policy um, against um, the contributions of philanthropy, not just in the present, but uh, you know, over the course of, of say, the last half century. Um, I mean, it's part it, it's part of a of a longer tradition, um, and so you know, at any given moment, there can be concerns about um, who you know, which political faction has um, has the upper hand. I think there are systemic reasons, which you're, you've kind of alluded to, why uh, you know why conservative philanthropy will almost always out, um, sort of outweigh um, strongly progressive philanthropy. Um, but but that balance is constantly shifting. You know, I, I do think that that there's moments in which it, it's been higher and lower, um, and um, you know, you I think you have to be aware of. Uh, of the kind of broader history of what philanthropy has contributed um, to to the nation, um, when you're making large scale judgments about about its legitimacy and its its you know fundamental role, um, so you know, and I guess that that brings that brings me 
to the, this is, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, this, this real sense of, you know, I mean, philanthropic history as, as tool, <laughs> which is something I'm, I'm always thinking about, um, you know, how, how to use it. Um, you know, and I, I guess I have it easier because my, my history is really only about a century or so long. I mean, yours is considerably longer. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting that this is exactly the question I was going to go on and ask you off the back of what we were saying because I'm kind of yeah I'm I'm interested I guess you know one of our shared areas of interest is is the sort of history of philanthropy and and both of us I guess are possibly slightly unusual in that world in that we also quite like to sort of think about how it's relevant to to the kind of the modern context I guess yeah one of the the questions I always have about that is you know, how, how genuinely useful is that? And what are the, the limits to it? Because I think, I, I mean, I do think having got into the history of philanthropy sort of quite quite late in the day, you know, I was already kind of working in the area and around policymaking and then developed an interest in, in the history um, as part of, you know, ending up writing a book about it here in, in the UK. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's a very, very good book. So oh, thank, and, thank you. And I, I, I'll tell people listening, I haven't even paid you to say that. So that's very nice of you. Thank you, Ben. Um, it's a blurb on, on Amazon. Very, yes. very good. Book. <laughs> there we go. I will go in and do that immediately after this recording. Um, but no, I guess, you know, it kind of the thing I kept finding and that really sort of um, it basically turned me from what started out as a, a report, really, and it meant it, it ballooned into a book was the more I delved into the, the history of philanthropy, which it has to be said, you know, here in the UK is not an area that is kind of over blessed with literature. Um, you know, there's some really good stuff, but it's still quite a kind of small canon. But there was so much in what was available that really resonated with my knowledge of the philanthropy and kind of nonprofit world and the issues that it faced here and now that really that either kind of reinforced things I already thought or challenged them or gave me kind of interesting new perspectives personally. And I thought that there was an enormous amount of insight and evidence from history that could be brought to bear um, that, uh, you know, is really kind of relevant to people studying philanthropy today, but also to practitioners. And that's certainly, you know, something that I've found in talking to people off the back of that book is they they genuinely do find it interesting and useful. Um, I guess, you know, the, the question I'll throw back to you is, where do you think you have to be careful about using historical uh, analogy in, in philanthropy or more broadly? Because I think I sometimes feel it's it can end up being a bit of a cheap trick because you basically argue a point and go, oh, look, here's a nice example from history. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's very compelling, but it's not actually the same as a, as a sort of full-blown argument sometimes. That's pretty much my entire party repertoire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, me, me too <laughs> you a bit. Just expo- you just exposed me. There we go. Yeah. All right. I, I need a new trick. <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, and and I, I, it's something I think a lot about. I think um, – so let, let, me, let me back up for one second and, and just um, – uh, explain um, some of the the work I've, I've done, sort of trying to figure out a way to combine historical research and inquiry into philanthropic practice. Um, uh, you mentioned, I think, at the beginning, this website called Histfil. Um, that's short for History of Philanthropy. So a couple of years ago, um, uh, I joined with um, one of my mentors, uh, Stanley Katz from Princeton, and one of his former grad students, Mara Belmore, and we. Um, we, we, I think, separately, um, but um, came to a, a sort of a joint appreciation that 
historians of philanthropy were sort of institutional orphans. You know, we, we every, many, many scholars um, studied philanthropy in, uh, at some point. You know, anyone studying policy in the 20th century probably had some interaction with the major foundations. Um, you know, the, the, and plenty of people had sort of peripheral interest in philanthropy and in, and in charity, but very few people thought of themselves as historians of philanthropy. There was no, you know, there, there were no very few conferences or, um, and, and really not much of a community. And, and I think similarly, there were plenty of people in the professional world and, and the world of, of philanthropic practice who had an interest in, um, in history. I mean, I, I haven't made a study of this, but I think there's probably a lot of, of um, you know, uh, history majors and, and even uh, ABD, uh, you know, or, or, or um, uh, people who are, had considered history as a, as a um, profession at some point in their life um, in, in the philanthropy world. And, you know, they many people had institutional histories that they were harboring and and had 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 helped them. But there just wasn't a conversation there. there people, people weren't talking to each other about that history. And so, you know, practitioners had no idea who was studying um, the topics that really interested them in a historical context. And, and by the same account, a lot of historians had, had really no sense that they were practitioners who were deeply invested in some of these subjects and had their own kind of um, you know, if not scholarly, then, then I think really deeply serious, critical, um, uh, interest in, in, in the subjects. But again, there, there, there wasn't a lot of conversation. And so what we tried to do is to create a kind of virtual community, um, uh, through this, this website, um, that, you know, we define philanthropy really broadly. Um, we, you know, it's, I think it's probably, um, heavily focused on the American context, but, uh, certainly open to global philanthropy. We've had, I think, some great pieces about philanthropy in India, for instance. We've certainly had pieces on British philanthropy. Um, but the idea was to um, to create a sort of shared community around this commitment to uh, historical um, uh, inquiry and, and you know, maybe even more broadly to a kind of humanistic orientation towards the sector. And I think part of this was a response to what I'm sure you've seen, um, which was you know, the this, this strong tilt and, and bias in a lot of research towards the sort of social scientific or the management oriented, um, the, the kind of quantitative uh, approach um, to kind of understanding what's worked and what hasn't worked or the major uh, thematics of, of the field. And none of us has any issue with, with that approach. I'm, I, I don't consider myself a kind of quant skeptic. I think there's important, uh, you know, there's, there's important contributions that a focus on metrics have provided. Um, but but there was a kind of, I think, a fundamental imbalance in, in, in um, how, you know, a lot of the, the, the research and the thinking, even more broadly, about philanthropy and its major questions were operating. And so this was just an opportunity to, to kind of, open the door and to allow, um, uh, to see what a, a, a kind of a historically informed approach to philanthropy would look like. Um, and get, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's an open experiment and, and we've, I think, um, I, I'd encourage you know, the, the, um, hundreds of thousands of listeners out there to, to check it out now. Um, uh, and, and again, we're, we're uh, very much open to um, contributors. So please do, if you're interested, 
shoot me an email and, and I'd love to hear from you. But um, one um, one issue that we we didn't um, press really hard is what the kind of instrumental or you know uh, utilitarian uh, justifications of the approach are. Um, and you know, and I, I have two. I, I, there's there's two um, ways I look at it. Um, there there's one uh, one answer, which is a kind of case study answer. Um, and that is if you, um, if you look at, if you study, uh, philanthropy, and especially if you're interested in kind of the study of what's worked and what hasn't worked, kind of an evaluative approach, then you're fundamentally committed to, to a historical approach. Um, any change over time is, is a, by definition historical. And so really any evaluation is, is, can be regarded historically. Um, and, and, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you, use the kind of tools of historical analysis, um, you can produce, I think, sophisticated accounts of, of, of um, philanthropic impact. And I should note here that for the last couple of years, I've been trying to do that. Um, some of the listeners might have um, heard of uh, an organization called GiveWell, um, which uh, has now kind of uh, split off a separate organization called the Open Philanthropy Project. And they have been really committed to this idea of, of utilizing um, you know, actual academic historical uh, rigor to produce um, case studies, which are not the case studies, you know, a couple pages that you, you might find in a, you know, in, in like an appendix of a, of a uh, regular philanthropy book, but ones that really incorporate um, the, a sense of contingency, complexity, context, you know, all the stuff that makes good history good. Um, and the idea is, so like, what do you get from that? Uh, and the, the paradox is I think that you, in one sense, you get a really um, uh, rigorous, robust understanding of how change happens. Uh, you know, I've done a whole bunch. I've done, uh, you know, a long one on, say, the um, uh, healthcare reform in the U.S. Uh, I'm just about to finish one on philanthropy's role in marriage equality. Um, and, you know, and, and I think the historical approach really does give you that sense of, of um, of, of nuance and complexity. The flip side though, is that the idea of, of there being a kind of bullet point, simple answer, you know, what, what can you learn from this? Uh, you're, you're fundamentally kind of challenging that, um, that, that genre. So from the case studies I've done for the open philanthropy project, you know, it's hard for me to say, here are the three things that the history of um, philanthropy's engagement with healthcare reform can tell you about how you should approach healthcare reform in the 21st century. Um, you know, I think there are some some lessons, and um, but it's it's really the uh, I think what you're really getting is a more complex understanding of the of the the whole ecosystem and how philanthropy interrelates and 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 it fits into to a, a larger context. Um, the other. Uh, and I, I, it's probably pretty clear from, from like how I'm hemming and hawing here. I'm still uncomfortable with a, a kind of complete instrumentalizing of, of um, you know, historical investigation. I think it, it has a definite role, but I think you have to be comfortable doing it without a clear sort of instrumentalized endpoint. But the flip side is that I firmly believe that a sense of history uh, and again, a sense of the kind of complexity, the nuance, the contingency, 
um, deep context makes people um, better givers. It makes people more humble about the enterprise of philanthropy and the potential for philanthropy to both do good and do harm. Um, I, I think it, it creates um, uh, you know, a sense of, of um, responsibility to, and, and stewardship um, and, and so I, I have a, you know, like a big picture, a firm belief in, in history as a kind of moral guide, um, a, a, a historical and a humanistic approach as a moral guide, even as I am still struggling to figure out, you know, what the bullet points are that I'm extracting from some of this stuff. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think that, that you're right, that sort of instrumentalist, I hadn't really thought so much about that. And I'll check out some of that stuff with the open philanthropy projects so i haven't really looked at it in, in any detail but i think that that kind of use of historical research methods in quite a pragmatic way to kind of meet meet the needs of the uh, of philanthropists in the sector now is really interesting but but i agree as with with anything to do with academia i think you you have to come back to that fundamental idea that these things need to have value in and of themselves and there doesn't necessarily need to be uh, a particular endpoint to to historical uh, inquiry, just as there doesn't particularly need to be in um, in any other arena. Um, I mean, I guess you know, I I would certainly agree that I I can't quite put my finger on what it is about the history of philanthropy that that is genuinely useful to me as a as a practitioner in kind of philanthropy and policy making now. But there is something. I mean, I I am absolutely one hundred percent clear that I'm a significantly better. Um, kind of policy wonk in the philanthropy arena having educated myself about the history of, of philanthropy because I think it just gives you a much richer vein of, of um, kind of evidence and, and case studies and understandings of themes and where they come from um, and also I think the you know one of the things I think you know when people challenge use of historical evidence which they justifiably do sometimes you know it's often on the basis that well you're just ignoring a very important element of the the context so you know for instance around anybody talking about victorian philanthropy in the uk if they don't acknowledge the sort of significant uh, influence of religion and the kind of the, the the quite fundamentally different context of religion at that that point in time in the country then what they're saying is is sort of irrelevant but actually i think the you know the the more that you sort of dig away at where uh, historical analogies fall down actually you that's where it sort of forces you to come back to the present day and and start to question you know your understanding of philanthropy in the modern context and it makes you think about all of the other factors in society that that it affects or is affected by so i think you get a much more rounded understanding of of philanthropy and kind of its role within society and that makes it seem like a much more genuinely interesting topic of study to me yeah no i agree and i mean one one of the um, the founding kind of objectives that we um, launched Hisville was to really grapple with this question of novelty. And that's, I think you, you alluded to it, to it earlier in the conversation, um, you know, that, that um, so much of what's happening in the philanthropic sector now is, is propelled by the sense of newness and the excitement of, of, you know, doing something that's novel. And I think that, um, you know, one one of the contributions that history that um, history can make is um, pointing out what is new and what isn't new. And so, you know, that that uh, a claim of novelty is again, it's it's by definition 
uh, a historical claim, a claim of, of uh, making a claim about discontinuity or continuity. And so, you know, when when we when I was trying to think about, well, you know, what is is strategic philanthropy new? Is uh, is uh, philanthropic capitalism new? Uh, that um, figuring out what is new is a and what is novel is a is a really valuable way to to focusing one's attention on what are the major issues that you that we should be really grappling with. And I I think you need to have a sense of history um, to you know to kind of distinguish between uh, the, you know, the the sort of the um, exaggerated you know puffery of, of uh, you know this is everything is basically new um, to and, and identifying the developments which really are uh, I think novel and represent um, potentially exciting but problematic developments in, in, the, in the sector so you know that that is I, we've uh, we've made that a, I think a, a pretty central theme of Histville and, and some of my some of my other writing. Um, yeah, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that too. That that we this is a time in which there's a there is some stuff going on that feels new, and there is a lot going on which people assume that is new, which actually has a long tradition. And if people understood that tradition, they might understand the contemporary scene differently. Yeah, totally. I mean, I um, no, I, I absolutely agree, and I think it's. I mean, it's one of the things I do a lot in conversation, which <laughs> makes me quite boring sometimes. Um, and also on this podcast, you know, the number of times where I go, "Oh, do you know, actually, here's a, an example of why this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon," which is, you know, it's partly if you are aware of the history, it's quite a fun thing to be able to do. But I think it also does, you know, serve a genuinely useful purpose. I mean, in terms of that question about things that are happening right now in uh, in terms of you know macro themes within philanthropy and ones where there's a historical um uh, element or sort of historical evidence that's relevant and um, a thing i'm really interested in at the moment and if i ever found the time to get around to writing another book would probably be what i'd try and do it on is around the interaction of uh, philanthropy and rationalism so i think you know the whole kind of effective altruism movement that we've seen come up um is is really intriguing although obviously kind of attracts quite a lot of criticism but it also ties into a lot of what's going on in technology which is kind of driving uh, a a move towards uh, rationality in all sorts of other areas and also kind of making it possible to to automate things more and more and you know that will probably start to impinge on philanthropy but you know the the desire to make philanthropy a more rational endeavor is is totally not new as well you know there's that whole kind of scientific philanthropy movement and the history of the charity organization society and these kinds of things which you know they they don't necessarily tell you everything you need to know about effective altruism or where things are going in the future but if you're talking about effective altruism and rationality in the modern context without understanding some of those debates that have happened in the past and where they ended up and what they led to, I don't think you're doing it in a sort of properly in, informed way. So, and I think the same applies to, to loads of the other big themes affecting philanthropy nowadays. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's a perfect example. I mean, for I, I get frustrated with some of the coverage of, of effective altruism, which assumes that the major kind of novel intervention it's making is that it's um, you know, trying to be a, a, a kind of a rational approach to to philanthropy or doing good, and or, or a scientific approach. And as you alluded to, there's a long tradition. Even using the exact same, like you can cut, you could take 
um, the sort of boilerplate journalistic um, engagement with um, EA in the 21st century and like match it word for word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, all, all that stuff. So, but what's helpful to me is if once you rec- recognize that there there is a lot of continuity, say, between the scientific charity movements of the, of the late 19th century and early 20th century and effective altruism today, it, it, I think that you hone in on what is distinctive and new. And, and I, I, I don't I'm not an expert on effective altruism, but my my sense of what's one of the things that's really novel about it uh, beyond the, the sort of um, the kind of efforts to um, quantify uh, with with um, different degrees of, of success, I think, um, the, the good that's done through philanthropic interventions. But it, is the um, comparing um, different causes to each other. Uh, and, and, you know, the, so um, there's been lots of efforts to say, uh, rationalize an approach to X, Y, or Z. But in my survey of the history of philanthropy, I haven't seen a lot of discussion, say, uh, uh, arguing um, you know, is, uh, is giving to a cancer charity better or worse, uh, than, than, um, delivering, uh, bed nets in sub-Saharan Africa. And that, that discourse I find new. Uh, and it's, it's because I appreciate what isn't new, what is continuous that I feel like I'm able to focus on and, you know, grapple with, um, the, the elements of, of VA, which, which I, I do feel are exciting and challenging. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I guess, um, you know, when I, I've thought about it in this context, it's exactly the same. I feel as though there's been kind of plenty of domain-specific efforts to impose rationality on philanthropy or or there's been some sort of underlying assumption that there's an agreed um, focus. So often, you know, it was just taken as read that poverty was the main focus. So, you know, you were operating in a domain even if you hadn't specified it. And the thing that is seems to me different about, about the whole EA movement is the idea of trying to remove any element of subjectivity, not just about where the money goes within a specific cause area, but about the very cause area um, itself. Um, I guess the the other the other bit that I haven't really thought through in detail, but I think there's something really interesting is when you you know when you look at the scientific philanthropy movement and particularly around the kind of charity organisation societies, often the the criteria that they are using for rationality to determine what's bad or good actually contains kind of all sorts of different uh, moral and religious elements, particularly around kind of views of poverty and i'd be i think it'd be really interesting to kind of contrast that with what are the ideological assumptions embedded in effective altruism um which are obviously different but they they are there you know it is an ideological movement even if it if even it claims to be sort of rigorously objective so um I'd be, I'd be interested if anybody's kind of thinking of doing that um that's a great point and, and i think what one thing that it suggests is that the type of distance that one can um, develop towards um the uh, philanthropic movements of the past that allows you to say, say, you know, isolate and identify the kind of fundamental ideological presuppositions that are um, animating some of the, the, the movement. Um, you know, it's hard to get that kind of distance um, to contemporary uh, phenomena, um, but, but sort of understanding how one approaches the, the charity organization movement and and seeing can you do can you take a similar approach to EA? I think it's a great example of sort of how a historical approach 
can inform a kind of general orientation towards philanthropy, which, you know, is, is just kind of um, helps you be a more critical thinker in, in general. So that's great. I, I, I don't I haven't thought deeply enough about it to to have a um, you know, I have a pretty good sense of, of the um, scientific charities uh, biases. Um, and uh, I think it's a really interesting question. Kind of are is there some other is there a contemporary cohort of, of, of biases that you know, it's more difficult for us to see because we're embedded in, in that culture. Um, but somebody out there is listening and, and it's a great topic for, for someone to tackle. I certainly hope so, yeah. Um, just just sort of moving away for a minute about kind of, uh, you know, sensible and sober discussion about the uh, the intricacies of, of applying a historical lens and making it a bit more frivolous for a second. What's, what's your favourite kind of go-to historical example or anecdote or your kind of favourite quirky piece of philanthropy history because i'm sure you've got one let me think for a sec um this this is uh this is probably not quirky enough um and it's, there's uh, you know there, there's all sorts of bizarre stories about um uh donors making really weird choices but um uh, an anecdote that, that always struck me and again this is coming from my um sort of my, my fundamental research interest in the critique of philanthropy um was the story of um, when um, the, the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission uh, in the early part of the 20th century, um, which was trying to eradicate hookworm in the American South, and one of the um, one of the uh, main ways that, that hookworm was contracted was people would walk barefoot, and in areas where they uh, wasn't good sanitation, um, the, the hookworm would basically enter their bodies through the, through the uh, soles of their feet, and so one of the um, you know, the, the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission tried to get people to use outhouses, um, and it also tried to get people to wear shoes. Um, and I, I was always struck by um, a conspiracy theory that developed back then that the entire enterprise of trying to eradicate hookworm was a Rockefeller effort to corner the market on leather, which would then drive up the price of shoes um, and and you know, make him uh, like you know a second hundred hundred million, um, yeah. So which that it's it's you know it's I guess I don't know if it rises to the level of quirky, but um, I, that's the kind of thing where it, it helps me to to appreciate um, how kind of rich and complicated and sometimes wacky the suspicion of philanthropy has been and the really fine line between kind of um you know crazy conspiracy theories and legitimate um you know kind of apprehensions about the power of philanthropy uh and so you know i always try to it's sort of like my go-to test when i'm um thinking about these things i'm not Am I harboring a suspicion which is the rockefeller's cornering the market on leather for you know to to uh inflate the price of shoes or is it in the kind of more sober um reasonable critique camp yeah no i know that's a good that's a good example that's precisely i mean yeah you know i wasn't looking at anything totally crazy i just kind of there's there's things that i think if you've ever come across them stick with you and you find you just wheel them out on uh, you know occasion after occasion because they just make that's, such that's useful my second, points my second part of track yes yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's it <laughs> yeah. I'm just, just. I'm aware I'm taking up loads of your time, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and kind of bring things um, to a close. Just one, one thing that that I wanted to to touch on, although I think you know it's in danger of being the topic for an entire other 
interview and, and conversation but just might be an interesting thing to finish off on yeah, moving away from the the history for a minute um you know given your kind of study of of the history of philanthropy and your kind of interest in the contemporary what what do you think are the kind of the biggest issues or challenges facing philanthropy particularly in the u.s at the moment because i know you know people listening to the podcast here in the uk would be really fascinated because often you know i think don't necessarily know quite so much about what's going on in the u.s you know, it's, it won't be surprising that that my interest in you know my historical interests are you know, are pretty closely aligned with my contemporary uh, preoccupations. I mean, I really do think the big issue facing uh, American society is the question of inequality and how that relates to kind of democratic institutions and norms. And so, um, the um, the ways in which philanthropy can actually be uh, a, you know, whether or not philanthropy can actually address inequality um, is a really tough question. I don't have a great answer to it. Um, but I, I think that is one that is increasingly going to kind of come to the fore uh, in, in discussions. Uh, you know, we, we've already seen a whole bunch of grant makers take it on, you know, the most famous being Ford, for instance, that's made inequality is now its sort of main prison through which it, has, it addresses almost all its policies. All, all its programs, um, but you know, but the, I I think that that um, confronting inequality as a problem um, and and what it does to uh, you know not to to the kind of voluntary sector more generally um, is is really a major issue, uh, and and um, the the you know we've talked a little a little about how philanthropy can share power and and um, I think I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by this question of the, uh, I think you alluded to it, this idea of democratizing philanthropy and, and what the hell that really means. There's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, it can mean, uh, it can mean um, everything from uh, allowing people to start a DAF with only $5,000 um, to literally shifting resources to, uh, to, um, to uh, the communities that are most affected by um by the main issues that philanthropy is trying to address and, and really giving them uh, control of, of resources. Um, you know, it, it, there's a, a vast range of participatory philanthropy and participatory grant making and, you know, kind of tinkering around the edges um, that, you know, I, I'm, I think if there's a subject which I really, I would love to kind of dig deeper into, it's figuring out both the history of some of that approach and also the kind of, range of of uh of um ways to to address the democratizing philanthropy imperative and 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 what its limits are <laughs> like that's kind of you know whether or not it really actually um can take us far enough yeah I, I think that's i mean it's a fascinating research question i think you know it definitely would be in my you know the, the inequality question would be in my my top three for sure because i think you know that that whole question of can you use philanthropy as a tool to address inequality or is inequality a precondition of having philanthropy in the first place so it's always going to be part of the problem rather than part of the solution it is a, a massive challenge um and i certainly you know i th i agree on you know on the question there are some really interesting approaches to things like participatory grant making and you know again we mentioned you know things like direct cash transfers but i there's there's a question in my mind when i think about those things about whether the various ways in which you can you can see it's possible to make philanthropy uh, more democratic 
actually almost always run counter to some of the fundamental drivers of philanthropy so you know if you're kind of particularly at a, at a kind of if you're talking about high net worth uh, philanthropists or wealthy individuals if you're if you're saying the only way that you can have legitimacy in terms of addressing inequality through philanthropy is for instance to give away all power over where money is spent or to kind of remain anonymous so that you aren't getting any personal benefit you know it's going to take a hell of an enlightened philanthropist to to want to give in in that context when you know when you kind of acknowledge that actually fundamentally philanthropy is about sort of choices of individuals to to give back to society and if you strip out all of those drivers do you inadvertently kind of take away the you know the very thing that that um uh, that kind of keeps philanthropy going i i don't know i don't have an answer to the question but i think it's a kind of interesting challenge and neither do i i think it's a great question i mean it, that um we shouldn't. So uh, this, uh, the question of, of, of uh, what the role of the means of accumulating wealth and its relationship to how wealth is given away, I think, is a really fundamental one in the history of American philanthropy. And you know, for a long time, there wasn't, um, you know, this, uh, the idea of living donors. Um, there weren't a lot of really engaged living donors. So that, that's a that, that for the most part, most donors who gave while living gave haphazardly and. And sort of in a very ad hoc fashion. So it's clear that we're now in a in a realm in which um, living donors predominate, and and therefore the their histories and backgrounds um, are are even more salient. And you know, it's a pretty strong belief that people who make money have a kind of talent and a you know a, a, this particular perspective that's helpful in giving it away. You know, this it's not a new one. This, uh, Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth really lays it out. Um, but I think you're right. That that belief is I, I don't think you're going to get rid of it. Um, but the question is, how can it be reconciled with or incorporated into uh, a, a kind of more um, community oriented or, or, or a kind of sharing um, understanding of, of the stewardship of wealth? Honestly, I, I'm, I don't, you know, I, I can throw out these questions um, and I'm, I'm, I think about them a lot, but I think a lot of this is going to be worked out in practice, uh, you know, and, and we're going to see it, see how it happens. Uh, and, and um, you know, it's anyone who, who actually claims to have uh, full answers to it, I think, isn't, isn't watching close enough. because I think it's, it's really pretty fluid and, and uh, incoherent now. So um, it, it does make for, I think, pretty powerful compelling watching though yeah and i think questions like that to me always they they seem like uh, reflections of a point i know um i i'd thought of and then rob reich went and made much more eloquently in one of his books about how you know uh, philanthropy is is a weird thing because it's one and the same time it's, it's through one lens it's about the kind of irrational uh individual choices of of people motivated by all kinds of different things to to give to to other individuals or causes but then it's also at a macro or aggregate level a kind of a force for for redistribution within society and very often i i think all of these things stem from the fact that those two different aspects of philanthropy are very hard to reconcile um, and certainly I think a lot of the challenges around policy making when it comes to philanthropy can be traced back to to that kind of paradox uh, I can't say better myself <laughs> I think I, I, I agree uh, yeah so um, that I mean 
I think um, it's the you know the subject of the the kind of underlying question of a vast majority of uh, of research and writing on philanthropy now. And again, it it, um, it goes back. My own historical research, I think, has confirmed this to me. Um, these aren't new questions, and the fact that that they've really been fundamental to the practice and the theory of philanthropy for a century, both should let us know that we're not probably going to solve them you know, next week, um, but also that thinking about them and, and really kind of grappling with them is what philanthropy, you know, what people who care about philanthropy do. That's, that is part of, of the practice of philanthropy. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I take some solace from the fact that, um, that not, up with a kind of satisfactory answer to, to some of these questions is, um, you know, it's actually part of, of a long and, and story tradition. Yeah, I think that's right. And I've, I've, I've managed to uh, reassure myself in terms of my kind of day job of policymaking that I sometimes feel like a bit of a failure because I've never quite come up with what I think is a killer policy for, you know, encouraging philanthropy or, or building a culture of philanthropy. But if there was a silver bullet, somebody else would have thought of it. So maybe I shouldn't be too hard on myself. Listen, that's that's absolutely great, um, Ben. I'll, I'll probably leave it there just because I'm aware I've taken up loads of your time. And there's, I mean, there's all kinds of other things. If, quite a lot of those things I could have kept going on for hours and hours and hours because um, it's all, you know, I'm fascinated by this stuff. But um, I just want to say, you know, thanks uh, so much for, for coming on the podcast. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure everybody uh, listening to it is going to really enjoy it as well. Um, and hopefully, you know, maybe at some point in the future, we can pick some of these things up in another conversation. I would absolutely love that. So uh, let's let's make this a um, a tradition. Great. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks again to Ben for taking so much time to to come on the podcast. And you know, I genuinely really enjoyed that conversation. It was absolutely fascinating. And I definitely will make good on my threats to get Ben back on the podcast um, for a future episode. If you are interested in these kinds of issues and you want to find out more, um, definitely check out the Histville uh, website um, where there's all kinds of absolutely fascinating articles about history of philanthropy in the US and elsewhere in the world. And I've mentioned it before, but I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, if you want to know more about uh, my own work, um, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. And if you've got any suggestions for topics we could cover on future episodes or people that I could try and interview, then drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Um, and other than that, uh, it just remains to say like, uh, subscribe, tell all your friends about this, get them to like and subscribe as well. And I will see you next time. Okay, bye! Bye!